Welcome to Trash Compactor. I'm Josh. Today we continue our coverage of the Star Wars prequels with an episode all about digital cinema and the transition away from film to digital as the dominant medium in film and TV. Maybe you knew this, maybe you didn't, but Star Wars Episode Two: Attack of the Clones was the first major motion picture to be shot on digital video rather than 35mm film, as was the standard at the time. And these days, shooting on digital is the norm rather than the exception, and Star Wars was right at the forefront of that change. So today, we're going to be talking about the differences, both aesthetic and practical, of the two mediums, film and digital video, and how Star Wars has always been at the forefront of change when it comes to the technology of making films, right up to the AR wall technology that makes shows like The Mandalorian possible. And so I'm absolutely thrilled to be joined by two guests, live from Orbital Virtual Studios, director slash visionary, AJ Wedding. Hello. And cinematographer Leo Jaramillo. Hey, guys. Uh, so first off, thanks so much for doing this. And I want to note for the listeners who, who maybe can't see that you are talking to me directly from Orbital Virtual Studios. So uh, let's start off with just explain to us what Orbital Virtual is. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting. Uh, some friends of ours were working on The Mandalorian when it was known as Project Huckleberry. It was super secret. And... Um, we had heard about this new thing that they were doing. And, and there have been previous versions of this where you have a green screen and you can put the live, you know, 3D content uh, on, you know, the, the green screen. Um, but this was the first time that it all kind of worked together. And as soon as I heard about it, I thought this is the future. I mean, that we're never going back. Um, so I wanted to learn everything I could about it. and funny to learn that um didn't really work so well for the mandalorian and had a lot of issues with it so our thought was hey let's figure out what those issues were and and how we can fix them if they are fixable and make a system that uh, is better for filmmakers is easier to use and actually works you know really well and so you know that was the the genesis of orbital studios in my garage about two years ago uh, with a little LED wall and a camera and good friends who are all filmmakers. And um, here we are now in sort of our headquarters downtown. It's uh, it's working out very well, it seems. Yeah, yeah we actually were, um, we had a movie scheduled. He was the VFX supervisor and I was the, uh, the DP and it was set for April 2020. And mm. so we had this, this scene where Navy Piers being blown up by a wizard and the, 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 the protagonists, very Goonies-like, the protagonists are driving go-karts with rocket launchers yeah. on top. And it, they're like firing rocket launchers. So it was, there, most of the budget of this movie would have gone to that sequence if we had to shoot it practically. So when we had lockdown, we're like, hey, when this lockdown's over in two weeks, right, it'll pick back up. We have to have a firing solution for not spending the bulk of our budget in this one scene. Um, and so that's that was the impetus for all of this. And then that's where he went down the rabbit trail. And then I brought cameras to his garage and then we tested. And here we are. Here we are. It's, it's a classic story. You know, necessity is the mother of innovation. And then 
you know, with a global pandemic to kind of uh, hit pause and give you the time to actually follow through on all that crazy stuff. Um, but I think you really summed it up. The um, one of the undeniable advantages of digital technology of any kind is just making things possible in a cost effective manner. Um, I am curious, though, I just I want to go back for a second. You mentioned that the AR technology that they were using, you know, at the time, really experimental technology on season one of The Mandalorian, um, they were encountering some some problems. And I'm just curious, one of the things I wanted to ask you guys, what are some of the things shooting on a stage like this with the augmented reality environment? What are some of the things that you have to watch out for that you have to pay more attention to as a DP and as a director? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because uh, depending on who you ask, the answers change. Mm. And especially here, because we've tried to knock down every problem that we could. Uh, you know, I mean, I think that uh, John Favreau will say, if you asked him, they weren't trying to shoot every shot with, uh, you know, in-camera VFX, final pixel, uh, they thought, hey, if we can get some of those shots, great. It gets rid of some of our comping that we have to do in post. Um, but, you know, seeing that that could be achievable is kind of what drove us uh, to making this, the system better. Um, I think in their case, you know, the camera had to be so far away from the wall. I think it was like 15 to 18 feet in order to not get moray. Um, you're sort of limited by the um, frame rates and the shutter angles that you can shoot, which is more of a Leo thing. And yeah, and if like going with his 15 to 18 foot range from the wall, um, if you know cinematography, um, you know that if you if you're at a table and a character sits stands up, you know, classic uh, Western saloon type thing where he stands up and then and as a camera operator, you're going to have to hold the top edge of the frame for headroom, you're going to have to tilt up. So if you're 15 to 18 feet from a wall and you tilt up with a 35 millimeter lens, guess what? You see the top edge of the wall really fast. So that means that when you build it, that means they have to build it in such a way where it's almost like a dome, like it covers everything. And so that, that means that the sheer size of the wall and the limited space of shooting area within that stage, it can be a detriment to your overall production uh, and cinematography and limits your lenses. So if you look at the original series, you'll see that a lot of them were like 50 millimeter, 85 millimeter, 110 millimeter lenses on close-ups. And then there's the skin and light issues and reflections. Yeah, so I think a lot of those things are are sort of the first things we tackled. So like in our stages, you can get within three feet of the wall with the camera. Uh, not like you ever need to get closer than that. I think you can do other shutter angles. You can um, do frame rates. You know, we wired this wall so that you could do 120 frames a second as long as your assets can hold up to it. Mm -hmm. I think for A&E, we actually did a, a glass break scene that we shot at 96 frames a second with 72 shutter yeah. yeah with a 72 degree shutter angle which is hard on digital i mean if you think about shooting a tv back in the old film days at changing the shutter angle to 144 or something or uh, 167 depending on the tv and the maker and it's like yeah it's very similar yeah i, I think that you know the limits are going away right if you're if you're here at orbital um a lot of the limits that you hear about at other places are just not there i think 
the thing that you could really focus on as a director is what incredible opportunities you have. So like, for instance, um, let's say we put a car in here and we don't have a techno crane. So we want to get a shot that's looking at the driver and then goes around and gets a profile of the driver, right? Um, I could put that car on a turntable and we can track the turntable to the world. Right. So as the car moves, the world moves. Um, we actually did a project where we tracked the world to a mocap actor's hand. So as they raised their hand, the other actor who is safely sitting on stage looks like they're being picked up by Godzilla, basically, and, and brought up into the air. Um, so there are just so many things that you can do when you start to realize that if you can move the world, you can kind of do anything. And you can also control the sun and the moon and the rain. So you can have magic hour forever or blue hour, which is even harder to get because no one wants to get up at three and get up to a top of a mountain ready for blue hour, which is nine minutes or at best, you know? So, um, yeah, I think what was the movie, um, what was the musical about LA? Oh, La La Land? La La Land. Yeah, yeah. yeah they talk about the, the dance sequence that they had where it was sunset and how it took them weeks to shoot that. Yeah. Like you could literally do that in one day here. Yeah, before yeah. lunch. Yeah, before lunch. Before lunch. Yeah, in fact, we did um, History's Greatest Heists where we had Pierce Brosnan. And the idea of the show is that it's all these recreations of these heists. And as the host, they want him to look like he's there. But of course, he's not going to show up for all of these, you know, heist things. So we were able to create backgrounds and then some sort of foreground set pieces so that he could come in and shoot out the entire season in three days. And I think it was like, what, 38 setups in three days? 38 setups in three. And his days were limited to six hours each day because he's, you know, Pierce he's, he's Pierce Brosnan. He can ask whatever he wants. <laughs> and, um, and so we would always finish every day before lunch with him. And then I would, we would pre-light for the next day so that we could, it was clockwork and he would wow. step off stage and it would, we would be in Amsterdam here on the stage. He'd step off, go to the green room, halfway to the green room. The second AD would say, sir, they need you back. And then he comes here and he's a airport hangar in Anaheim or in, uh, in Orange County. And then he takes off again, comes back and he's in, uh, uh, uh what's the German airline? Um, Lufthansa. Lufthansa. He's in a Lufthansa cargo building. And then it's just, and then he comes back and then he's uh, on top of the roof in Spain. It's crazy. It was crazy. It was like one of those. Things. Yeah. I, I think one of the things that um, people, when they think about virtual production or in camera VFX, which is what we call it, or um, AR wall technology, um, it's all, we're all trying to say the same thing, but everybody kind of has different vocab. But I think everybody points at, the stages as the as what it is right it's this beautiful led wall and a tracking system but that's really only part of it i think that the biggest part of it is the efficiency you create by having these tools in pre-production so for yeah, instance if i sure. have the set uh both the real version you know uh, what was going to be actually physically built and also what's going to be in the wall um the production team can all use that the director can use it to create storyboards 
the DP can light it. Um, weeks in advance. Weeks in advance. Because we, in advance. we know the light, we know the weather, we know everything about what the setting's going to be. And then it becomes so much more efficient, which this is already a very efficient process, but then you've got all your department heads working out of the same document. And Literally. Yeah. And as it's changing and getting better and, you know, production designer can go, oh, I don't like that red and how it looks on the wall. Let's change it to turquoise or whatever. Right. So it's, it's really a fantastic production uh, method at more than it is a yeah. stage. It's almost like you can teleport your entire department heads to the location and the time and look at it and go, okay, this is what it's going to look like. Okay, and, great. And they can all be on other shows at the time. Yes. And literally just like zoom in right. or VR their headsets in. Whatever. Yeah. It's funny, like as someone who thought that I had wrapped my head around a little what this technology was capable of, just hearing you talk about it, you know, makes me realize that haven't even really scratched the possibilities. One question I had for you, AJ, was just something you've said before, uh, but the phrase, when you can move the world, like that, I think, really changes the way you conceive of the whole production process. So many of the limitations or restrictions that you had to contend with, like now that you can literally move the world, I mean, I'm just wondering, are you still constantly like like unlearning what you have learned and being like, wait a minute, I don't have to do this. Like I can just, why don't I, we track it to his hand and we can do this shot that I never would have conceived of prior. Yeah, I, I think that uh, it's so exciting every day around here because we're constantly, you know, th there have been multiple times where we were the first people to do something. And that's it, just... It feels pretty good, too. Yeah, that's exciting. <laughs> it's so fun. <laughs> and to walk around and think, you know, oh, like we were just talking about today, you know, we've we've had a couple of tests at this where it's like, hey, you know, what if we didn't even have a set? What if you could create like a hallway kind of maze and we kind of go through it and um and showcase how close we can get to the wall and what that means for um the kind of shots that you could get especially if you had to do something quick it's like hey you're making alien and you've got this big huge elaborate set over there but we just have this walking hallway shot we don't really have 300 grand to build a a set for it can we just throw it in the wall and so you know we tested that we're about to test like a bigger version of that um so, I mean, yeah, we're, we're constantly exploring the new ideas. I mean, just, just this past week. Mm -hmm. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was really interesting. So, um, <laughs> you know, a lot of times people talk about how long this stuff takes and, oh, man, I got to hire the director and the DP like a year in advance because they got to make lighting decisions. And that's just a poor pipeline that's being used. You know, we're, we're trying to push the new virtual production pipeline, which is much shorter because you're not tied to all of the software that visual effects companies are used to using that are slower. Um, and so like, for instance, we, we had this shoot that changed their days on us. And so we all of a sudden had an open day uh, where we were going to have all this equipment that they already rented and it's just going to sit here and they already paid for the crew. And we were like, Hmm, what should we do? So I wrote a script. Uh, we found some assets on a Thursday on a Thursday. Afternoon. Uh, I've, uh, we found some assets on the marketplace that we could take the Unreal Marketplace uh, and then, you know, zhuzhed them up and made them a little bit more custom for us uh, and shot the next day 
an entire short film in a galactic senate kind of environment that that's about to be bombed from space yeah yeah you know unbelievable just real quick and and did some things like going up and down stairs which um i haven't seen done yet in virtual and, and we were we had a we are the this we're on the small stage right now which is like 50 feet uh in diameter and so aj had written a, a walk and talk um and we it was funny because i think we hit that same aha moment we're like because we're like going through like the dialogue and like wow we're going to run out of space on this 50 foot you know because we're not going to use the the outer edge of the 50 we'll probably be in the closer to the the center um because of the proximity of to, to the wall so it's more like 10 or 15 feet so it, we needed about 30 feet of walk and talk space and but then it, it we were like wait you're gonna cut to the overs the french overs rather than the 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 the, the, the front front view right you're gonna cut to the front the overs uh, on the others like and and intercut between that for for this walk and talk so we essentially could shoot the walk and talk in one direction and then change the world, like reset the world and reset them from, from the, the reverse, from yeah. the reverse. And then, and right. then continue it because then you would have, then, cause no matter what you'd, you'd cut into it. So it was like, whoa, we just extended the, the, the walk. And it was, yeah, and like, oh, instead I, of oh moving, I see, I see what you're saying because no matter what you're going to be cutting into it. So, so it doesn't right. matter if you're shooting it from the other side uh, because it's still right. And instead of moving all same. of your gear and all of your lighting and everything, right. we literally just turn the world around and start shooting. That is, it's, that's mind bending. It's really, it is. It really, it, once you start, it, it's almost like, um, I, I don't know. You ever play super bomber man? You know, that's how I always, I know this is saying so random, but like once you understand the physics of Bomberman and then you're just like, oh, if I do that, it does that. If I do, and then it, so this, that's what virtual production's like. And you start to understand the mechanics of it. And you're like, and then you drive home and you're like, oh, wait, that means we could do that with water. That means we could do that with a tracking shot. That means we could, whoa, we could do that. And it, it just, it builds, it's like, it's a, it's a very fun playground. Very fun as a cinematographer. No, I can imagine like you've you've opened up a new dimension. So you have to train yourself to start thinking in that dimension. But then I realized, but no, like this has opened up multiple new dimensions at the same time. So it's sort of <laughs> it's like, yeah, I can imagine the only way to really wrap your head around it and figure out how to utilize it is to really immerse yourself in it and be doing it over time. Yeah, every project we do, we we learn something new, and kind of like tying it back to sort of the Star Trek, Lucasfilm, ILM kind of thing. I mean, they they did this as a. I mean, this was a, a an evolution, obviously, but um, you know, they did this to solve a problem. Like, how do we make a Star Wars TV show on a budget? Right. And uh, and so that was their solve. Um, I, I feel like they're constantly, you know, Lucas when he made the switch from digital or from film to digital um, much like we've demanded from the people who make the screens and the people who make the tracking systems, he was able to demand from Sony, you know, very specific things that he wanted about the cameras. They were making digital cameras, mm -hmm. but they were like 30 frames a second or 60 frames and yeah. it was like 24. And they're like, that's hard. 
Yeah, right. The Sony <laughs> F nine hundred and with the Digi Primes. That was the that was I think the makeup of the episode two. But yeah, yeah he had demanded like yeah, he had demanded twenty four frames on that. Up until then, they, they all those broadcast video cameras were twenty nine nine seven. Um, so the because the frame rate mattered, you know, like see. See, see, that's really interesting. I, I can recall as a you know young student filmmaker, the vast majority of the things I shot in school were on video. The problem with video was always it didn't look like film because of the frame rate. Obviously, there are many, many other differences, but that frame rate, the 24 frames a second versus 30 or 60, was really that like holy grail of that film look. It's just really interesting to hear, you know, George Lucas was also coming up against that same limitation. I was like, no, no, you guys, it's got to be it's got to be 24p. Um, one of the things that I am curious about, I think a lot of people may not realize who aren't so into film, is that that subtle but very clear difference, even if you're not consciously aware of it. The difference between that film look of 24 frames a second that you associate with drama and with, you know, stories and feature films versus 30 frames a second or 60 frames a second, which is a smoother motion that should read as more, quote unquote, realistic because there's more information there. But we associate it with, you know, news coverage and with things happening in the now. So when you shoot the wrong I'm using air quotes, the wrong frame rate for the kind of project, it completely alters your perception of what it is that you're watching. And I'm just wondering, do you guys think that 24 frame versus 30 frame per second distinction is just something completely arbitrary because of it's just what we're used to? Or do you think there's something sort of inherent in the 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 quality of it? I know this is a, a little sort of an esoteric question, but I was wondering if you had any thoughts about that film look. Is it? just an accident of of technology or is there like something inherent that you know makes it more desirable i mean i think it came out of animation right they they realized that the the lowest frame rate that your eye didn't notice the you know the changing of the frames was 24 and so it was the most economical way to create uh something right because fewer fewer pictures that they'd have to draw yeah. And so I think uh, from there, it just, I think the romance of film, right? I mean, we get so used to it when someone does something different, like The Hobbit. The Hobbit. It's yeah. like, what are you doing? You know? Right. And also, like, uh, there is, I mean, obviously you have six versus 60 frames, you know, there is a lot of information there. And you called it smooth. Um, however, at 24 or 2397, which we're at now, um, the, there's so much motion blur in between the frames there would, there normally would be that crispiness, crispiness, um, at the, at, you know, with 30 and even 60. And so that motion blur kind of, for me as a DP, it kind of feels like a memory. You know, when you're watching a movie, it feels like a memory. And, um, because you kind of remember things in like, in, you know, and kind of, a, a, a for me, I don't know, maybe I'm, I'm, I have been known to be a little nuts. So may, I, I remember things in blurs, you know, and like, oh, yeah, there's that. And then it's, there's that. And it's never been that lucid, super clear, you know, image in my head of a memory. It's always like, oh, yeah, that feeling. And so 
the idea of 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 using more of your your senses rather than just your eyes but just your heart and like how you feel in in it kind of lends itself for me that that adds to the romanticized view of of cinema and at at, at 24 frames yeah there's also that just that feeling of oh i'm watching a story i'm i'm part of a story mm-hmm. um you know it's like when they all, you know the tv manufacturers started making it so that they could fix it and make it higher quality and everybody went no yeah um mm. because look at that and it looks like real life is it better quality yeah yeah but it takes you out of it, it it's like i'm not watching a movie i'm not a part of a story i'm in real life and I don't want that. I came to the movies to see a movie. Yeah, I, I, I've had full-on crews that um, we we were, you know, we'd we'd uh, take over a hotel, um, very similar to Tropic Thunder, and we'd like we'd go in, and rather than have those crazy parties, every all the the DIT and the ACs, we'd be going to everybody's room, like take, taking hyper smooth down, and then resetting the TVs, and then like going, okay, Ramada and or wherever, and they're like. We've done our we've done our deed for the cinema world. Let's go off, you know, and like <laughs> that's, that's yeah, that's a fun. that's that's very funny. I was at a doctor's office the other day and they had the TVs on in the waiting room and they all had that like, you know, motion smoothing on by default out of the box. And it was just I just had to avert my eyes. But it's it's so interesting, though. And I think both of you really said it in different ways. It is a feeling that you you can walk backward into an explanation for why it feels that way. But it is a feeling that it's really hard to say definitively, no, like, here's why this feels like this and this feels like that, which is, you know, I think one of the reasons why film and television is so is so magical, because it is sort of like right on that line between the technology and the dreamlike perception of human experience. And it's sort of like where they meet. Yeah. I mean, there's also, there is a very, I mean, there's a reason why it was really hard for people to move from film to digital. I mean, at the time that they were trying to make the move, they looked very different. And we've closed that gap, I think quite a bit with the look. But there is still that sort of chemical, you know, uh, emulsion that that just there there's a, you know, and in fact, film actually works better on these LED screens than digital does, which is kind of ironic. Is that true? And it's very, and, and 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 what's and just I mean, we haven't even gone into the latitude of film and how, you know, I mean, that's that's the other quality. That's what makes it feel real, because you, you don't walk into a room and everything's contrasting within 13 stops, you know, like right. that's, that's, I mean, that's a, that's on a good camera, a d- good digital camera now. Um, I mean, I think they're saying Venice and 35, Airy 35 are around, you know, 15 or 16 or whatever. But I mean, like it, there's the, the infinite, it feels like an infinite number on film because you, you have the, this like, you know, Florida skies, and then you have the dark, undertones of of underneath the car and then you have everything in between and you can still see detail in shadow and you can still see detail in the clouds so that's what celluloid can do and if that's what also feels like your eye so that 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 remakes the the human experience and then couple that with 24 frames feeling like a memory to me uh it it, and you're and you know we're just we're just standing on the shoulders of giants you know, who have paved this way 
and it's like and and we're like oh this is the convention and it and it works it and there's a reason why it's worked it stand stood the test of time for a hundred years so it's still working you know you see you know Cohen brothers are still making things in 24 or like all, all our heroes are yeah i mean and you still have to shoot if you're doing like effect shots with like explosions you still have to shoot film because digital doesn't have the latitude for it really so, yeah i mean i didn't know that something changed recently but yeah i mean new deal when i used to work at new deal studios we still up until uh i don't know a couple of years ago were shooting explosions with film because yeah you, you you're gonna miss out on the detail with with digital oh that's fascinating i actually had no idea about that yeah, the highlights um, of explosions. You know, you know, yeah, you, you have to get all that 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 bloom. You know, it's like there's so many different like shades of orange and red and white in that. that you just have to capture that the edges. Otherwise, it would be just up like a flash. You know, right? No, that makes total sense. It just never. Wow. Yeah. One other thing that struck me while you guys were talking that I just wanted to mention really quick is that the thing that I'm constantly reading about George Lucas, whether it's from when he was making films in the 70s or really working on advancing the technology of filmmaking in the 80s and 90s, is like it really frustrated him that he wanted to be able to do more than the technology was really capable of. Like the thing that really hit home for me is that he's editing film, literally, you know, cutting film on a movie or Steenbeck, he already wants to be able to do non-linear editing. He just, he intuitively knows that it would be a lot easier if you could just move everything around and just not be limited by that physical medium. And it's just striking to me that like your studio, I think, is really the realization of the dream for what filmmaking could be like, that he was constantly trying to move towards through through all, through all of his his company's innovative work in digital technology. It, like it always blows my mind, like nonlinear editing today, we just call it regular editing. It's like, you know, the Avid was the edit droid that his company pioneered. And everyone was like, what are you doing? Like, what are you spending all this money on for this thing that like no one is going to use? And it's just really striking to me, like what you described earlier, how you guys are on a stage and before lunch, you're shooting in Amsterdam and then you break for lunch and that you come back to the stage and you're on the other side of the world and you're in control of the lighting and the everything. And it's just all it's all right there and you can do exactly what you want. Like, that's what he wanted. 30, 40 years ago, and you guys are doing it. I mean, he he's certainly one of my biggest heroes. I think uh, before this, this started, we were talking about the movie Tucker, A Man in His yeah. Dream. And one of the sort of themes in that movie is, you know, businesses hate innovation because it costs money and you're not helping sell units, you know. Uh, and I think that the the film industry for the longest time didn't want innovation. You know, the innovation was the art and he wanted innovation. I mean, the film industry as it exists today is because of him. You know, all of these editing yeah. tools that we've had our hands on, uh, you know, at a young age to be able to play with, um, digital cinema, I mean, digital from a camera all the way through the projector is because of him. And um, the, the ability to distribute a movie across 3,000 screens at a push of a button instead of 3,000 answer prints mm. that are, you know, how much a piece, you know, 100, 110,000 a piece, you know, it's just, it's changed everything. 
And I, I think that we owe it to him to continue to innovate. We owe it to the industry to figure out how to make every tool we have better and better for filmmakers specifically, not just, um, you know, better technology. You know, one of the things we always talk about with this stuff is there is absolutely an art to it that uh, people like Leo, um, very few people really understand. And, and there's a lot of misinformation out there that um, sends you in the wrong direction, uh, which is unfortunate. And those are the kinds of things that we try to fight because we know how valuable this, this tool set can be for filmmakers. And we don't want people getting the wrong idea or using it improperly and having a bad experience, which unfortunately there have been several of those recently. And we're, we're sort of fighting back by saying, Hey, ours isn't like, right. Not at our stage. I mean, and that's the, that's a thing is like, as, as one of the, the DP here, um, helping develop it with AJ, um, and I come from the industry. I'm not. I'm not a gamer. I'm not a uh, video engineer. I am. I am a, a union cinematographer living in Los Angeles, working in Hollywood, and so I know what the tolerances of what directors and creatives need. So when he asked me to help him out and like help like shoot and do tests and like we and create a, a workflow and a list of what to do and not do, and how we can make the not do into a do and make it better then you know i was intrigued and so at, fast forward to now and i'll bring in a new director and i'll shoot the project here with them and what's really fascinating is the freedom that i give the director the creatives the actors um by like and using orbital as a backdrop and setting it up so that all this is in place but you know it's all in place and then then the director's there and all they have to do is worry about the performances with their actors. That's it. And, and so what I get to experience is the punctuated uh, creativity that, is, that leaps off the page with these performances. And I've seen the evolution of it in, in, like, in real time. And it's really, as a filmmaker, at my, at my very core, not just you know a DP. I'm just a. I'm, I love movies, but to watch it that evolution happen and go, wow! Because now they have the freedom to express, and they have the safety to express, and the repeatability that the rainstorm's going to go from this side to this side, and she can and on a cue like look into a candle and blow it out at the right moment. You know those are things that you couldn't control because of the weather control and all that it's like it, it frees them up to have almost close to perfection of what they had envisioned without limitations and that is a pandora's box that you give to a director and he's like whoa i can do anything and 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 he, and he can or she can and it's wonderful and then they just they might drive home like thinking of all the other things they could do so that's that's why it's a box it's not because it's well, a bad thing it's just it opens up for everything yeah, I mean, you know, first off, I just want to say, like, you're really, you're energizing me creatively. I'm getting very excited just by having this conversation with you. Um, 
I've been telling you about it for a while. I, I've been in I our tell, I know, I'm like, I know, you I know, I know. State, you'll blow your mind I, and you're like, life yeah, is I tricky. Life, life is busy these days. <laughs> but certainly you have. And I really do appreciate the uh, the window that you've given me into into what you guys are doing there. The um, What is interesting, and I want to be clear that this is not a negative criticism from my end. Like I'm like really fascinated watching the technology, what it's capable of and the evolution of it. And, you know, once you have the awareness that the technology is being used, like I feel like, you know, you alluded to some, I guess, pitfalls that like you have to watch out for. I was reading um, one of the DPs on The Mandalorian was talking about the luminance issues and how when they shoot something that's supposed to be outside, like they go outside on the back lot so they get the proper luminance. And I was wondering if you could explain that a little for listeners who may not understand exactly why that is. Yeah, I know Leo will have something to say on this too, because we heard that same thing and decided to put it to a test because, you know, every time we hear something, they say, oh, you can't do this, you can't do that. Those are the first things that we want to do. So uh, we actually made a, a project with Sony where um, the, the idea specifically was, came out of that was, oh, well, we can't do bright daytime outside all right, let's shoot something in the middle of a desert with a flaming crashed airplane and see, <laughs> and see what happens. Um, and I think that part of it really comes down to you have, you have these people that are controlling this wall, right? They come from visual effects or they come from gaming or even you know, tech-driven kinds of companies. And then you've got the cinematographer uh, who comes from you know, understanding light and and how to shape things and they don't know this technology. So they're listening to those people that are, you know, running the wall. And unfortunately, some of the advice I think that is being given is incorrect. So one of those big things is that you need to have a full like LED ceiling capping the stage and that you use that as a light. Um, it is a really low quality light to try to use. I think it's, it's good for reflections for something like the Mandalorian or a car commercial, mm -hmm. but having room above you to light properly gives you the capability to do those things that like you're saying that DP said he couldn't do. Uh, and we've heard of multiple occasions where DPs who have a ceiling, a LED ceiling are ripping out parts of it to put lights in, lights in. Um, for that same reason. They have to shape the light and create what they're trying to create. But go ahead, Leo, because you shot the, the Sony project. The oh yeah. Yeah. And that, that was one of the other things is like, yeah, the, the, the idea of, um, it doesn't feel like it's outside, you know, like that, that was the misnomer that a lot of us, uh, were given. And so I know Sony felt that way and they were like, Hey, we, we want to see it done. So they, they, they brought their Venice two over. I think it hadn't been released yet. And we were one of the first to test it on a virtual wall. And it worked really well because what you what you do is you like you you think about it like this. Remember those those fourteen or fifteen layers of uh, of latitude I talked about earlier. And then mm -hmm. if you get the asset in that f frame, like obviously anything above that is waste, right? And it would be like if you went outside and you shot and you overexposed the sky, but you got everything else. So what you do is now you're like now you think with what you control the Earth with now. You're like, okay, let me get my highlights in these top two, three areas. And then you can dial in the wall for the sky 
for that. And you're like, mm -hmm. okay, maybe this very, very top one, we'll let that go, like to simulate the overexposure in, 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 in outside. And then you can dial in the rest of the asset um, and, 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 and go all the way down to your lower levels. And then so that replicates your latitude. So then now you light the foreground in, this, in such a way, because think about like the latitude is locked in, in, in the wall. Then you light your foreground to match that, but then you, but then you, but you put highlights and you put other things within your character that's in the foreground at those top levels. And then you put um, the, in the lower levels of, of the Mark, who is our, our, one of our, our characters. And we will send you the, the video so you can attach it if you'd like. Um, we, we have a finished cut of it. And, uh, and, and then you, you put him in the, in, in, and you light him the same way. So you're lighting both the asset and him in the same way that you would light outside. Um, and you're trying to put them in the same levels. And he's like a microcosm of the background in, as far as light is concerned. And so now if you're, if you're pegging the, 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 the digital camera at its highest levels and its lowest levels, and, you're, and you have this scene with the shadows, the drop shadows of the airplane are at one o'clock, then psychology takes over. And it's like, oh, they're outside. They're outside and this is, and this is very believable. And then, and then when people watched it, I know that the, all the people from Tokyo were in, the, were in the back there, they were flipping out. They couldn't believe that this was on a stage. They were looking at the monitor looking at their camera that was capturing what was into the monitor, then looking at the stage right in front of their camera, and they're like, oh, oh. it's like that, uh, the Jackie Chan meme, you know, the, when, you know that I'm talking about. It's like, oh, you know, like, how, what's, how is this possible? You know, and um, that was a riot. That was so much fun. And then it was just like, okay, we got to check that off. Let's, let's do something else. Yeah, I think, I think there's also, um, I've heard this a lot that, um, well, you know, the LED wall is not punchy enough to give you like some direct light. Well, don't use it as a light. Yeah. That, that's the thing that we tell everybody, like stop using it as a light. Um, it's, it's a really, you know, they, they have this thing called CRI. It was a color reproduction index. I think now there's a new, it's SSI now, but uh, we used to call it CRI. And the CRI of the sun, which is a perfect light with a perfect color spectrum, is at 100, right? And so all the lights on your set, you want to be as close to 100 as possible. Some of the newer lights that we're using, like this one there, uh, you know, it's a CRI of about 85 or 90, and that's pretty good. The CRI of an LED wall is 13. Okay. So don't tell me you're going to get good uh, skin tones from something that has so many gaps in the color spectrum. Um, so, you know, I think the other thing is, you know, that, that camera sensor is is being pointed at a light and we're trying to trick the sensor into thinking it's not a light so you shouldn't use it as one right i mean i, I we've heard of methodologies i mean we we like my friends are on some of the major shows that you know of um but uh, they they've been told things that are like hell oh, you know what if you have a character standing there and you need more fill light on them then like right where that's you can see here where this oh is imagine that as a big square of white and like emitting light and they're like and so to a tech like a, a game engine designer or somebody who's not in who doesn't have a color meter 
they, they, they might think, oh, there's more light, right? But it's not color. It's not, and that's why, and it's, and so even though you, you put a big block of light on the wall, how are you supposed to flag that? Like, how are you supposed to cut it right. and shape it? And like, if you want to do a Charlie bar across the eyes, or if you want to like do a teaser or a fade or something, how are you supposed to do that? If it's like a cove of light, that's, you know, six feet, feet tall. And on top of that, you know, like, like the color that it t touches the skin. I don't think it's any accident that Mandalorian wears a helmet, you know, yeah. like, because the, the reflective nature of that is it works great. But, you know, I know that there's other sequences where they show skin, but like, for the most part, he's in that metallic outfit and it's like, oh, okay. Or stormtroopers, you know, you know, there's no skin. I mean, there is skin, but it's it's harder. It gets yeah, muddy. Not very often. Yeah. I think the other thing too is, um, if you're in a big LED cove and you're using the ceiling and the walls as light, um, the the camera sensor can make rounding errors on the colors. So colors are measured in nanometers, and uh, I know of examples from big shows where. They'll walk in a cast and they're wearing, say, yellow outfits. And you look at you look at them and you see that they're wearing yellow outfits and you look in the camera and they're orange. And it's because if the color is not being presented properly with the full spectrum of light on it, then the camera is not seeing that full spectrum and rounding in a different direction. Mm. And um, that's, you know, another reason why you really have to have real lights. Um, and you know, it's kind of like anything, right? I mean, if you go outside and you shoot a walk and talk down the street, you're still going to light it. You're not just going to say, oh, well, this is the light that would be in this yeah, universe. Absolutely. Yeah. You put right. the sun in a certain spot and behind you and bounce for, you know, whatever you're going to, you always have to craft and shape it for the story. No, yeah. And I think to, uh, I know you're going to say something, but let me throw in one thing no, here. No, go ahead. Um, uh, my gaffer Hunter and I, we, we often like, we look at a scene and go this, the, the first thing we think of, like when AJ throws up the asset for the first time, he's like, Hey, we, this is the next project that's going to be shot here. Let's take a look at it. So we look at it and we go, Oh, it's a jungle sequence. All right. So if we were going to do this for real in the jungle, what would it look like? Like what, like we'd have, you know, a crane here, a condor there. We'd have like a 40 by 40 fly swatter above so that to, to, to soften the, the direct sunlight, but we'd still push Dapple through. So we start thinking about what we do in the real world and then, and then go from there. And it's so you're, you're like, and you're always like thinking like in the, like in the real world, like how to replicate that light. What is that Dapple going to look like in the jungle? Like how do we create movement of the trees? And you're, so you're still, as a filmmaker, doing all those things, but you're using real light to do it as you would in, in the field. It's just you have this optical illusion as your backdrop to help you get most of the way there. Totally. Yeah. So, I mean, it just seems like what you're saying is I feel like what, you know, is always at the end of the day, the answer is you still have to light it the way you would light anything else. Um, something has made me think of, it's not, ex it's not exactly what you're talking about. The space shots in Rogue One, for example, look so good. And I was trying to figure out why 
until somebody pointed out it's because they're blowing out the highlights like on the spaceships because when the sun is your primary light source and there's no uh, you know medium to really filter it's this it's this harsh sunlight it's like if you look at video of like the international space station or the space shuttle or something it's like the lights are really light they're really blown out so if you're imagining well if i was actually trying to shoot this you know giant fuck off star destroyer what how would i be shooting it and it's like, well, you would probably be blowing out some highlights because it's 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 so bright. Call me up a hammerhead Corvette. That's my favorite scene. I'm glad you said that. <laughs> it's because you feel it. You feel that. Sh- oh gosh, you uh, feel that yeah. moment. No, yeah, the anyway. last like third of that movie is like perfection. So good. <laughs> um, or the last uh, twenty minutes of episode three, but we'll talk about that later. Wasn't God? Uh, what's the guy's name? The guy who just did Andor. Uh, Tony Gilroy. Tony Gilroy. So Tony Gilroy, I think, was the reason for that last sort of 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah. Um, Which is, yeah, like you said, the best part. So good. It's so good. Um, I guess I just have a question. Well, I have two questions. The digital cinema that was on display for for episode two, Attack of the Clones, and then also episode three, which is only 2005. It was only three years later. So. So we're still talking about the very uh, beginnings of the the modern age of digital image acquisition here. Can you see the limitations of the technology then versus how how it would look now? I guess what I'm asking is, what would a film shot digitally in 2002 or 2005? What are the tells and the giveaways in terms of the quality of the image and what has been, you know, quote unquote, solved since then? I mean, for like, I mean, latitude, I've, I've mentioned it several times, but the I, I've shot on the F900. I did. There's a fan film that was sanctioned that we did called Forced Alliance, and it was shot on the exact same lenses, if I remember correctly, that was used on episode three. I think wow. that, yeah, episode three. Um, so they're called, they're basically the Digiprimes, the Sony Digiprimes. And they had, they were, um, they were, you know, they were good, I guess, for, for the time. Uh, F900, the workflow on that thing was clunky at best. The batteries would go fast and then they try to, you know, change the body and then they added the Genesis later and then the Genesis was like a tank and it, it was whatever. It, it, it didn't, but Sony had been there all along. And so the latitude of digital cinema now, it's hard to distinguish sometimes if if something shot on film or something is digital unless you go to the set unless you go to yeah yeah because because really the the i think the greatest probably thing that's been solved is the sensitivity of the sensor yeah yeah i mean you need so much less light now to create the same looks right i was on um we were on uh the the show justified city primeval um which is coming out i think this summer and there was a chance that they were going to get uh, Quentin Tarantino to direct an episode. And because they knew that he was going to want to shoot film, they had to put in a lot more spaces for lighting um, Mm. just in case he would. So we had all these extra rigs that were necessary if he wanted to shoot film. Of course, didn't happen. So all that rigging was done for nothing. But um, but yeah, I think that's a big one. Yeah. Media size is like, huge now like we you know with 8k cameras 6k cameras they they can they can hold it the the f900 at the time was was that 1080 it was 1080 that was a 1080p they shot they shot attack of the clones at 1080p 
so nasty. Which wow, is, I didn't even think. I haven't even thought about that. So, <laughs> which is crazy. Wow. Which is absolutely yeah. crazy. Yeah. I think the other the other thing about those that film episode two, also episode one and three, is that everybody assumes because we were talking about digital, everything's moving to digital, that everything you saw on screen was digital, and there are so many physical models mm. that were used. Yeah that we know several of the model makers and, um, you know, they are indistinguishable from the CG assets. I mean, they look really good, especially for that time. Yeah. So I think that's, that's no, maybe totally, the other yeah. thing. I think people don't realize also that, you know, model making still has a place in cinema because even with Mandalorian. So one of the reasons I ever found out what they were doing on Mandalorian was because a friend of ours was creating miniatures of some of the set pieces because they didn't have time to create everything digitally. They wanted to scan miniatures. And so, you know, miniatures are huge for virtual production as well. Well, that's really interesting, especially because, yeah, you can create a physical miniature and then scan it. And then using your technology, you can, you know, I guess in the old days or in uh, the days of the Star Wars prequels that we're talking about, like, 20 years ago, you would shoot your actors in front of a green screen and comp them in. But, you know, now you can literally have the miniature environment surround them. So it's sort of it's sort of the best of all worlds there. Actually, I'll give you one more, Josh. With a miniature, what you're doing is you're replicating real life, right? Like, a, like let's say do a cityscape, right? Like London in, in the Jack the Ripper time period, right? Um, and now you have it in, in a miniature. So that means that you have to, uh, with, with optics, you have to change the circles of confusion and the depth of field to match what that miniature is, right? right. So that means that, you know, a certain, a 2.8, you have this much in real life, but at 2.8 in a miniature world, you're like, you're like right, right, right in here, yeah. right? This right. little tiny little thip, like space. So you put that on the optics on a miniature set in front of an LED wall, that means you can play the miniatures much closer to the wall and right. the light from that wall, even though it's CRIs, you know, not the best, but the it's overall ambience. Of, yeah, yeah, it's still interactive. Let's say, so you have Jack Skelton like on a broom. I'm mixing everything up right now. Jack Skelton <laughs> on a broom with Harry Potter punching each other. Like and and you'll they'll, they'll be affected onto the miniatures' roofs, you know, right. as they like they fly across. So like you start thinking in so many different levels with with the with this technology, and it's it's really fun. And now now you can drop the the depth of field, so it's like micrometers, you know, and and then it just it it looks right in the background. Well, yeah, and like shooting miniatures, like we we did with Fawn Davis, we did some spaceship tests, right. Where you know, instead of having to do, you know, your blue screen comping and, and trying to figure out what that match move would be in space, you can literally just shoot it with space and, right. and right. actually That's have true. the move track. Um, you know, so it's, it's pretty, it just opens up so many yeah. doors. I mean, you know, you know, the name Fawn Davis, right, Josh? Yes. Or, or, I don't know. The, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so he, he was here and it was just fun watching him like, we're we're both like moving around. I'm like geeking out because it's freaking Fawn Davis standing in front of me, um, with one of his models that he made. And we're he's like, wait, so that means you can just move the the space? And he's like, yeah, we can move the space, and then it can reflect this way. And then 
And then he's like, well, so this is the shot. And he's got his little camera and he's moving around. He's like, oh, that looks good already. And that's what we hear so much is, oh, that looks good already. And then, you know, obviously we'd like to augment it with lighting, but to make it perfect. But exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's there it is. Another question I had just in terms of the differences in the mediums, you know, something that I think a lot of directors, a lot of of cinephiles find desirable is that quality of film grain that is something that just occurred naturally and organically when shooting on film because like you were saying aj it's emulsion it's chemicals having a chemical reaction and it just sort of does what it does and that's and that's the look but how i guess subconsciously when you're seeing a purely clean digital image for some it's without that kind of mitigation of like film grain between you and the perfectly replicated image like i'm just wondering do you encounter people who miss film grain or who say to hell with film grain or is that something that ever factors into in your post work? now yeah yeah you just gotta yeah, slap it on yeah oh you, and you can <laughs> you can change how big or how thick it is i mean I, I um i was doing prep for a potential job and we this same thing came up it was a 1970s tv show and so we were experimenting with Kodachrome looks and like what Kodachrome really would have done if we shot it right now, if it still existed. Kodachrome 64, not, not the, the lower speed one, like the 15 or the 20. And, and then it was good. And then Aiden Stanford at Arsenal is like, well, let's throw some grain on it. And he's like, oh, that's, that's too much grain. That wouldn't be on Kodachrome. And then, and then you start dialing it back. I'm like, yeah there it is right there that's and then then you lift it up a little bit i'm like because the the grain added like it, it would feel like a little lower and just because of the the natural thing of grain and then you just add a little lift and then you're just like oh man that's pretty per and i shoot a lot of film i mean my instagram's i mean fistful of film i used i shoot all kinds of film cameras still but it it looks great like he said you just slap it on and then you can adjust the the, the temperament of it yeah i mean you can also just shoot film i mean we uh the show westworld i think that it's season finale over at nant studios and they shot film on the led wall so oh I mean, that's that, true well, yeah you could just shoot film on the led stage yeah and, and film actually is more forgiving in so many ways it's actually way easier to to work with because it has a global shutter you know i think uh first man our friend ian hunter uh, was a visual effects supervisor on the show First Man, the movie First Man, yeah, um, and won an Oscar for it. And that was that that was using a big LED wall, which it was before we had really fine pixel pitch. So it was a you know three millimeter pixel pitch. So the camera had to be fairly far away. But because they were shooting film, the fall off on the lenses was such that you didn't see the moray. You know, you don't really get moray. I don't think with film. Yeah. So uh, that was you know. And they just shot film and they, they didn't even think twice about it. It wasn't like, well, what, what do we have to do with the shutter angle? What are, nothing. Like you just, it's film, yeah. just shoot. Yeah. Because it's, it's overall a softer look. And, um, mm. and that's why celebrities had a lot of pushback in the early aughts when red came out and then all the Alexas and all, and everyone started making digital cameras and they immediately went from looking pretty good for your age to holy crap look at those lines 
And so then, 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 you know, we have to do all kinds of things to the lenses to soften that up, you know, filtration and, and nose grease and, and all these, all these tricks. But yeah, like the, cause it's so much harsher. And then you take that not harsher, but detailed, I think is a better term. Yeah. And then you take that into, you know, the digital world and, you know, you have to, you have to, that is a factor, you know, that's, that's definitely a factor over film. Though now we have uh, live deep fake technology and uh, yeah. touching that can happen, yeah. you know, I w- immediately. I was reading yeah. an article about that. That's, that's, that's wild. <laughs> that's, that's, it's really. What, it's was really it on us? I don't wait, when does think this... it was. Wait, wait, wait. So yeah. Yeah. When does this Nothing. come out? Nothing. Josh, we're just this destroying comes... the world, but any, anyhow. Um, no, I'm Guilty. sorry. It wasn't something I read. It was a, it was a podcast that was talking about what goes on with digital de-aging and like, you know, nips and tucks oh, yeah, here sure. and there. Oh yeah. I think what AJ was, re- well, and hopefully this will come out in a t- different, in a time where we can talk about it, but. No, I yeah. I mean, this isn't actually on the, this isn't going to come out until the end of May. Okay. So we can talk about it. Yeah. No, so we, we actually just, um, shot a project where one of the pieces of technology being used was a live deep fake. So, um, you know, one of the things, if you look at say Mandalorian season two, where Luke shows up and it, it kind of works, like it was pretty, pretty good. Right. But not great. Um, and part of the reason is because it was a post-process completely and the actor didn't get a chance to see like what it looks like on him as he's, Mm. as he's moving around. So you're not able to affect your performance. So, you know, I shouldn't call it deep fake. It's actually called digital prosthetics. Yeah. So the idea of it is that it still requires an actor, right? And in this case, the actor was able to see what his face looked like, what it would have been a post-process as he's acting. And so he can see, oh, if I do this, I don't, I don't look like that character. Maybe I should keep my head here. And, oh, if I do that, then I look more like the guy. So it's a really great thing for that. And also, you know, one of the, the biggest things that this is going to do for people is no more nine hour makeup sessions for alien makeups. You know, if an actor can just walk on screen. Pre-calls. Yeah. 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 Makeup pre-calls. Yeah. 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 No, well, that's and, true. And you know, what's, was... what, what's crazy is this stuff that he's talking about. I mean, as I'm moving a light on our physical actor's face, like this, I'm just, I'm, I mean, I'm just moving it side to side. I know your audience is mostly audio, so they can't see my hand gestures right now. Um, but if, as I'm moving it side to side, I'm watching the drop shadow across his nose of the what is it? The prosthetic, digital prosthetic, the digital yeah. prosthetic person that it's he's. Re- it's happening instantaneously. My camera team, my lighting team, they're all just like looking at it going, what, what, what are we, what, what, what's going on? So, and then I talk up and like, which is really weird because the reason why we're doing this, and I talked to, to some of the, the, the people that not only is the asset easier, but because there's less physical stuff in the volume, it helps with the tracking of, of what, what's going on with the face. And, and I was like, wow, that's a, that's like a side benefit. We didn't even think about like, and that's the thing. It's like every day it's like, whoa, that really makes sense. Cause if they were doing it in a real place, they'd have to like track, they'd have to look at all the things that it wasn't. 
and then isolate those and then just right. track the face. But because there's nothing in this virtual stage, but we're in a physical, it looks like a physical space, but it, there's nothing physically here. And it's just like, oh, okay, there's another reason why virtual production can work really well on top of the multitude of, of them. So, yeah. No, that's really mind-blowing. So, so I'm just like, thinking in terms of applications for a show like the Mandalorian or like sci-fi or something like that. So you're, you're basically saying like, you know, not to mix my franchises here, but like, say you have a guest actor who's only available for a small amount of time and you know, they're supposed to be a Vulcan, but they can't <laughs> show up uh, f for the early call. Like with this digital prosthetics, like you could just give, give them pointed ears. <laughs> you're, you're so good, funny. Good example. Good example, Josh. I think there, there's also sort of the controversial aspect to it, right? Where um, for uh, Rogue One, they brought back Peter Cushing. Peter Cushing, yeah. Right. So, you know, and in this project that we worked on, they also brought back someone who's no longer with us. And that's another thing you can do. And it's, it's going to be controversial uh, in how we figure out who gets paid for that and right, right. who gets to say whether or not that's okay. Right. It's yeah. a whole, you know, that's a litany of things that, yeah. you know, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I just make it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it is interesting. This isn't exactly where I intended to go with this conversation, but like there are a lot of these strange ethical issues and these like strange, well, who's responsible for this issues that are coming up right now with all of these, these AI chatbot technologies and generating images. And it's, you know, trained on the data sets of people's work who didn't necessarily know that that was happening and stuff like that. And I think something we're all grappling with right now is, you know, how much is too much? And when does the thing that we love stop being the thing that we love and it's 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 something that's unrecognizable like i really do appreciate leo the way that you're talking about the sort of the the romance and the humanity of the that's sort of inherent in these projects because at the end of the day i think you know all of this technology is really in service of creating something that's supposed to be very human it's supposed to you know, really hit us on a, a visceral level. And, you know, I think whether or not the technology that creates it has to like, like yeah, I guess I don't really know what I'm saying, except like, I don't know where the line What's is either. It's, yeah. oh, I see where you're going. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, I appreciate your eye and your sensibility and like the, for lack of a, a better word, the, the romance that you have for, for all of this stuff. You know, I think that that comes through in the work somehow. It's not it's not something you can necessarily quantify, uh, but I feel like that like humanness comes through on screen. Yeah, they, these are just tools, right? I mean, you can give you can give these tools to anyone and they're not going to come up with the same creative choices, right? In the end, you have to have a passion for your project. You have to have a vision and you use the tools that are necessary to get the shots that you're trying to get and sell the story that you're trying to sell. I think in the end, it's still, it's still the same thing that we've been doing for years and years. It's filmmaking. Um, we talk about this a lot because 
people are like, oh man, you're not even going to need the LED walls in a year because everything's going to be digital. The actors are going to be digital. It's like, look, all that is is probably true. We're probably going to get to a point where we can do a fully digital production, right? With mocap and whatever else. Um, there's been versions of that already. Um, but in the end, does it serve your story? And if we understand all of those tools and we use them to the best of our ability to tell the story, that's, that's what matters. And things like chat GPT, you know, they're, they're great for helping out. I think with, you know, I don't, I don't think of them as, you know, creative tools. I think of them as, um, doing the busy work I don't want to do. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's like, write me a press release about and the properly formatted press release, you know, or write me some code for this thing we're trying to do in unreal. And then they, it writes you the code and yeah, it needs a little bit of adjustment because it doesn't understand exactly what you're trying to do, but it takes away busy work and it allows you to focus on the creativity. Now, am I going to let mid journey decide the designs of my characters? No, definitely not. But can I have it spin up some things based on previous artwork of mine or, you know, to, to try to help educate people on what I'm trying to do? For sure. I mean, I think that's it's valuable as long as it doesn't become a crutch. Yeah, no. Um, you know, it's interesting, too, because I think I think as with any new technology, the um, like the use of CGI, computer generated imagery, I think, you know, it's a really good example where you see what's possible with it in those initial uses in the late 80s and early 90s that ILM did of like, you know, the Abyss and T2 and, and uh, Jurassic Park, obviously. And this is basically the cream of the crop spending as much time, as much money as they need for these few shots. And it's used very judiciously because of how labor intensive it is and how uncertain they are. And then within a few years, you have projects where, well, oh, the CG can do anything. So let's just do everything in CG. And, and, and you start to see a lot of examples of the technology used poorly where its strengths and weaknesses are on full display. And then you start to see people realize, oh, okay, well, you know, maybe we only use this for certain kinds of things, or maybe we just have to be, we have to put a little more thought into when and how we use it instead of, as, as you said, AJ, instead of using it as a crutch where it's like, well, just let it do everything and, and do its thing and whatever it is, it is. Similarly with digital cinema, like I think there were some really interesting kind of experiments in the early aughts, like, you know, I'm thinking of, um, you know, Michael Mann in particular with uh, Viper and um, or Miami Vice. Yeah. Yeah. With with uh, Miami Vice and um, uh, what was Collateral. that movie? Collateral. Yeah. Where, yeah. you know, he, he's really sort of leaning into the videoness of the video and like, you know, seeing what it can do. He also did Public Enemies, too, which was also that video, same camera, but it didn't look good. Well, that public enemy example, I think, is instructive because it's a period piece. The quality of the image just feels it it doesn't match the content of the story. Right. Whereas yes. for something yeah. like a collateral, you know, you sort of go with it, even though it's a little like, oh, that's a little not what I'm used to seeing. But it kind of works because you are used to seeing poorly lit streets shot on video at night and it creates some kind of an eerie thing. But like when you're shooting something that the aesthetics are sort of inseparable from the the content you know like something that's a period sort of stylized movie it it doesn't really 
you know, the artifice starts to be like front and center and you, uh, you're aware that it's a film that's shot a certain kind of way. Yeah. All those films had the same kind of look. Yeah. That Viper film stream kind of look. Yeah. I think, I think actually it was, it might've been the F 900 for Miami vice at least. Yeah. For Miami vice. I think it might've been, you can double check. I don't, I don't know, but uh, I know it was Dion BB who did that. And, uh, he also did collateral. I think he took over. I think Paul Cameron was the original DP. And then, he, yeah. So, but yeah, I think, yeah. And then you're also, you're also, uh, there's one more, uh, Zodiac was Viper film stream. That was, uh, uh, Dave Fincher. Well, so Zodiac was really interesting because that kind of like clinical style of the film, I think sort of worked with the style of the image. So, but that aside, like, there is something that I I'm just curious to get your guys thoughts on. So so episode two, Attack of the Clones, first feature film shot on digital video versus celluloid film. And then episode three, obviously, was um, was also shot digitally. We come to the sequel trilogy and the new spade of Disney Star Wars films. And correct me if I'm wrong, I believe all of the feature films have been shot on 35 mil again. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think a part of Thank that. Thank you, JJ. Well, yeah, well, well, so so I think a part of that was setting all value judgments aside. I think there was definitely an attempt to recreate this kind of aesthetic experience of the original trilogy from the 70s and 80s that was shot on film and has a certain quality about it. Um, And I think, you know, even though there is a ton, a ton of CGI in the new Disney movies, I think there is a concerted effort to making these new films feel more of a piece with those original films. And I'm just wondering, you know, and even to uh, to bring up the Tarantino example that you mentioned earlier, it's like there are still certain filmmakers who still want to shoot on film despite the potential of digital to be virtually indistinguishable if you're shooting it properly. Um, you know, was it necessary for The Force Awakens to be shot on 35? Like, do you think that digital is in a place where you can still get that vibe, that look and that feeling of you know 1980s kind of blockbuster filmmaking shot on digital video or do you think that that was sort of the way to go um i mean the i feel like the original s- series the seven, 1977 70 uh eight, 79 and 81 were all on panavision and that was the, not on, in it we haven't even gotten to the lenses but panavision lenses um mm-hmm. And when you return to film, you can put those Panavision lenses as well onto the Panavision camera and, and, and everything. But, um, and I know you can, you can use a Panavision lens on a digital camera, but I think the two of them together created that homage, um, to the original series. And I, I, I don't know if that was intentional or, or, or if it was just for the homage or if it was just for the purity of it or. Um, but you know, it, it, it was, it, it was very satisfying as a fan and as a filmmaker and as a cinematographer, it's definitely really satisfying that they did it that way. Um, and there's one thing that we didn't even get into, and I think we're already at a minute or an hour and 30, but when you shoot on 35 millimeter film, you got to remember something, the, a lot of 35 or a lot of film cameras, they have a video tap on it. 
and it, it mm. basically the image goes through a beam splitter and then the video tap is spits out like a 480 or it maybe they might have upgraded for for jj they must have uh, maybe it was like a 720 or a 1080 video off of a beam splitter and so it's not very good and so what ends up happening on a 35 set is the operator is on the eyepiece and it's called an eyepiece not a viewfinder um it's an eyepiece and then the the dp is literally right behind the operator looking past the magazine the thousand foot mag and probably metering with a spot meter and then right behind him or her is the director who's looking down and they're all imagining what a 50 millimeter looks like as as a uh, daisy ridley is walking through the frame and 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 they're just seeing the direction of like i just know from my experience like seeing the how the magazine points and turns and like they're trying to imagine right over the mat box what it looks like and then right behind that the director is a production designer who's looking and they're all trying to visualize what the frame is the spirit of filmmaking on 35 is that you 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 are a part of it it's not just data that's being recorded to a uh, a monitor and you're everyone like uh, if you've been on set lately every there's like 15,000 monitors everywhere and everyone knows exactly what the image is and there you have art departments that have screen share on their iPhone and they're just like they're getting the and they're moving like knickknacks and doilies across a table and going oh that's the perfect positioning right there and it's not so much it's a different methodology on being on 35 millimeter and i think that might have been a conscious effort by you know our heroes over there um to to bring that back because that feeling on set is completely different than digital yeah and i think jj abrams chris nolan and quentin tarantino i think are co-owners of kodak now right? yeah i think they are i think part of that is to preserve that you know preserve not just film but that process that you're talking about i mean that's it's a very different kind of set and I, I always say too, you know, I, I sometimes teach um, a film production class to actors um, to give them more of an understanding of what um, what it's going to be like on a set, um, you know, at my alma mater. And so uh, one of the things I tell them is, hey, look, all these digital cameras are great because of all the latitude they allow you as far as, you know, how long you can roll and how many takes you can do. Uh, you're not, you know spending money you know it's not a thousand dollars every time you roll out of a mag um however people who have shot film have a different sensibility of the care and quality that they put into a shot because they understand that if i do three takes of this that's two thousand dollars you know and and i have to really make sure that i'm i'm getting exactly what i want and that amount of thought that goes into the blocking, you know, the camera blocking, the how we're going to cut this together. So we make sure that we're not wasting, um, makes you a better filmmaker. Yeah, absolutely. And even when you go to digital, having had that experience, if you keep that, you know, while keeping the advantages of, Hey, we can still keep rolling because this actor is almost there and we can get him there. If, if we just give him one more quick note, um, you know, then you get the advantages of that, but also, you know, the advantages of shooting film, which is that care and, and quality that goes into your shot creation. Yeah, because you can hear the magazine rolling on a film set. Like you can, 
there's a little spindle on the take up side of a Panavision, which is the rear one closest to the operator. And it's got a, like a little, uh, like a zebra looking shape color. So like a spiral. So when it's rolling, you can see it like moving. And so if you're close enough to the camera, you can actually hear the motor and it's like going, and all that is, is money, money, like turning. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. and, 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 and it's like, whoa, this is real. And so there is the elevated, an elevated awareness is every, it permeates every position on a 35 millimeter set because they can see that little spindle from a distance where there's sound or there are there. Yeah. Yeah. It's like that. Or, this, it, or, or if it's well, wardrobe yes. or yeah. Very and it's like, well whatever. Yeah. Well, no, you know, anyhow, no, you know, he spent a lot of money on with me. So. <laughs> It's interesting too. Like I have cut a few films. I work as an editor, but I last used a Steenbeck in 2001 and I learned a lot of editing on, you know, an actual flatbed Steenbeck. And while I wouldn't trade the tools I have now, there is something to be said for, you know, when you want to make a cut, you got to really think it through because <laughs> you have to hmm. physically cut that thing. You got to line up the, the tape. And if you if you messed up, you got to you got to undo that very gingerly. So 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 that the extra time that you're sitting there actually doing it, I think, really kind of sharpens your uh, your sensibility. I mean, I mean, that's what I'm hearing from what you're saying about shooting on a set that's shooting 35. It just seems like, you know, you really have to think it through. Well, uh, guys, I could talk to you for hours and hours. You've been very gracious with your time and I've really enjoyed this discussion. Is there anything that you wanted to mention or say that we haven't gotten to yet? Mm -mm. Nib high football rules. <laughs> Adam Sandler, wherever you are, I love you. <laughs> and AJ, if people are curious about learning more about Orbital Virtual Studios or seeing some of the work you guys have produced, where should they go? So you can go to orbitalvs.com that's victor sam virtual studios um or they can follow us on instagram which is uh, orbital virtual studios and there will be links to all that in the show notes i want to thank my guests aj and leo for a really awesome conversation and again like i said i could talk to you guys for hours more but um you should you come like, to the set or come to I the will, stage I, you know i will I absolutely will. It, life is tricky lately, but I will absolutely, I, I, especially after this conversation, I'm so, I'm like, I'm vibrating with excitement about what you guys are talking about. Wonderful. If you liked what you heard, please visit us at trashcompod.com where you can find transcripts of this episode and our other episodes. And we are Trashcompod across all social media, and we will see you on the next one.